0: To this country's friends all around the world, many of you have worried that Canada has lost its compassionate and constructive voice in the world over the past 10 years. Well, I have a simple message for you. On behalf of 35 million Canadians, we're back.
1: The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Café as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives because the political conversation matters. Mr. Speaker, here is a question. Is Canada an essential country at this time in the life of our planet?
0: Most of us here would agree that it is. Hi, Canada. You're back and we're back. For another episode of Globalization Cafe. It's been two and a half years since Justin Trudeau's Liberal government came to power, and that time has been really characterized by Canada's effort to reclaim its position, its status as one of the good guys in international relations. As Foreign Minister Christian Friedman pointed out in a much celebrated speech last year.
1: It is our role to provide refuge to the persecuted and downtrodden. It is our role to set a standard for how states should treat women, gays and lesbians, transgendered people, racial, ethnic, cultural, linguistic, and religious minorities, and of course, indigenous people. We can and must play an active role in the preservation and strengthening of the global order from which we have benefited so greatly.
0: So how successful has Trudeau's government been in achieving these goals? On some issues, it's clear that Canada has returned to the forefront of defending the liberal international order, particularly on issues such as climate change and uh, advocating free trade, highlighting a stark contrast with the giant next door to the south. In other respects, however, there's been continuity with previous administrations, in particular controversies over the sale of arms to... uh, Saudi Arabia, and on uh, another Middle Eastern issue, a continuity in Canada's voting record at the United Nations in strong support of Israel, despite a a greater polarisation between traditional allies in Europe uh, and the United States on that issue. In some respects, the government has also tried to forge a new path, differing from previous administrations by speaking more openly and directly about Canada's her own colonial legacy and the ongoing suffering of Indigenous Canadians. Though many critics would note, for all the words, uh, there has been little meaningful action so far. So, to discuss all this and more, we're joined today by our, a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Sean Narayan, who's a professor at St. Thomas University here in New Brunswick, and I spoke to him on the phone by asking him to introduce himself and to outline his research in this area.
1: My name is Sean Narine. I'm a professor of international relations at St. Thomas University. My area of specialization, what I've published the most in and focused the most on, is uh, institutionalization in the Asia-Pacific region, and I've just finished writing a book which is going to be coming out with Lynn Reiner uh, Publications this March. The book is called The New ASEAN in the 21st Century. And I'm also interested, I've become increasingly interested over the years in Canadian foreign policy, and I am looking at doing something, uh, a book project or a larger research project that looks both at Canada's role in Southeast Asia, and, and a slightly different project that actually looks at some of the ideological divisions uh, that are developing within Canada that I think are somewhat reflective of what's happening in the larger Western world and the implications of that for Canadian foreign policy.
0: So Canada is seeking election to the UN Security Council in 2020. Do you think that's a good idea? And if so, uh, why?
1: Uh, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad idea. Uh, and I think fundamentally what's happening is that the Trudeau government, it wants to make a mark and it also wants to send a signal to the rest of the world that you know that Canada is back. And I think their logic is that this is particularly important after the damage that was done to Canada's reputation on the international stage um, by by the pre- previous government, the previous um, government of Stephen Harper. Um, and I think that, that that's difficult to underestimate because certainly one of the things that, that diplomats around the world noticed under the Harper regime was how differently Canada was behaving. And so, from this point of view of uh, geo-government, it would be sending a good signal for the rest of the world. Now, all that being said, uh, I think the primary reason that they're doing it is that it's a, uh, it's something that appeals to their, their base at home. You know, so this is pr- pr- uh, fundamentally about domestic politics. Um, but, but I think that potentially, this could backfire on them. Um because in some important ways the government has not changed um Canadian foreign policy from the Harper Harper era in ways that might damage um the Canadian's Canada's chances of, of winning the Security Council seat. And and the, the most obvious area is in uh, Canada's policies towards Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, but in other areas like for example um cutting um, aid to Africa. To the best of my knowledge, the trio government has not restored that aid, and that was another factor that played into why Canada didn't get the Security Council seat or couldn't even proceed to the end of the vote um, back in 2010. And so, on the one hand, the trio government, I think, is doing this to send a signal to the world that Canada is trying to return to the kind of helpful, um, multilateral country that it's been in the past, and also to send a signal to the domestic base that this is what Canada is. And of course, this is what many people, many Canadians see Canada as being. And so this is a way to say to the base, yes, we're going back to the kind of internationalist country that you want us to be. Um, but there is this risk that we may end up losing the seat in 2020 as well because the Arab world or the Muslim world will notice that we haven't changed very much from the Harper era when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians. And um also that in other important areas. We haven't made much changes either. Now, that being said, we have made some significant changes in important areas like climate change, for example. Um in, in the general attitude that the government's taking towards multilateralism is very different than that of the conservative government. And so those are important shifts and rhetorically um Canada has changed its positions as well in many areas. And so that may all work. Um, that may work to our benefit when we actually go for the seat. But I think the seat is going to be more of a risk than the Trudeau government is willing to appreciate at the moment. And if they end up losing the seat, and they end up losing the seat for very similar reasons for why the Harper government lost the seat, that could create some fairly significant problems for them with their base at home. Um and so, so there's a political risk involved, both at the international level and possibly at the domestic level.
0: That's fascinating, um, especially because if we look at uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, speech to the UN General Assembly, um, in fact, he devoted almost the entirety of the speech to discussing issues around Canada's colonial legacy and its treatment of indigenous populations within Canada. Uh, is this um, an unusual occurrence that domestic politics would play such a big role in, a, in, a, in an issue like the pursuit of a UN Security Council seat?
1: Um, well, a couple of things about that. First off, I would say that Trudeau's most recent speech to the UN, I think this was his second speech to the UN, was very unusual. You know, uh, both for, uh, um, It was an unusual speech for a world, world leader to give to the UN, and it was certainly an unusual speech for a Canadian leader to give to the UN. and. In part because, as you said, it was so directed clearly, not only to a domestic audience, but also it was a real airing of Canada's dirty laundry um, on the international stage. In fact, on the biggest international stage that there is. Ordinarily, countries are not anxious to embarrass themselves or or hold themselves to account before the entire world. And so from that perspective, what Trudeau did was extremely unusual. Now... He did it, though, again, as you're saying, as you're implying, entirely, I think, for the domestic audience. Uh, well, not entirely, not entirely. Uh, um, there is definitely an international dimension to it. I think. I think in a certain bizarre way, what he did was a bit of what, what people may call a uh, humble brag. You know, that, that there, there's a kind of a prestige, almost, to being willing to say to the world, we have done terrible things in our past and we're aware of our own failings and we're aware of the things that we need to get right and we're going to try it, right? And, and there is a level of of uh, courage that comes with, with doing that and a level of um, respect that you gain by admitting your mistakes and saying we're going to do be better. And so I think that was part of what was going on. And in that sense, it's an interesting kind of calculation. Um, so the first speech he gives Lays up Canada's um, advantages and all the wonderful things about Canada. And this particular image of Canada, the government wants to promote. And oddly enough, as part of that image, um, there's the second speech he gives, which underlines, and, and it doesn't actually contradict anything he said earlier. In fact, in some ways, it it, it works, uh, it uh, c- c- complements it by demonstrating that Canada is such a liberal and such a, a, a an open-minded country that it's willing to look at its own history. So, now, from a domestic point of view, I think that played well as well with his base because that's what a lot of people in Canada actually want. They're they aware of the fact that the native population of Canada has been horribly mistreated and they are at least on board rhetorically with the idea of doing something about it. There's another part of me that wonders if to some extent Trudeau was backing himself into a corner that by making these kinds of commitments on the international stage, it becomes, at least in principle, it becomes harder not to do these things or not to act on these things because you have advertised to the world that you're going to do it. But ironically, you could actually flip that entire argument around and you could say that um, by doing this and saying this on the international stage, he's created an impression that he's going to do something so when he doesn't do anything, it's it, it's harder to it, it's obscured um, almost by the fact that he's gotten up and said he will do something. But I'm not quite that cynical, and I actually think that uh, Trudeau genuinely wants to do something for the native people of Canada, and and this is part of his way of acknowledging that.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, certainly, it always seems that honesty can be considered a, a risky policy for any politician. Uh, but let, you, uh, let me ask you a bit more broadly. Um, you mentioned that Canada lost its seat on the UN Security Council uh, the first time it hadn't been re-elected uh, since uh, the UN was formed at the end of the Second World War. It lost its seat under Stephen Harper for largely three main reasons uh, we can interpret. It was far too close to the US on issues like the War on Terror. Uh, it uh, was... Um, stood in opposition to the international consensus on climate change leaving the Kyoto Protocol and uh, um, uh, where it cut aid to Africa and so on. It was also particularly taking a very strongly pro-Israeli line. Um, We've seen obviously a shift on climate change. Uh, We see um, uh, Trudeau sort of managing Trump as best he can, uh, arguably successfully so far. But there's been continuity, uh, particularly on Canada's voting record on Israel-Palestine, with strong support for Israel consistently since Trudeau came to office. How do you see the issue? Continuity or change?
1: Well, again, it depends on the issue you're talking about. And, and I think you're right. When it comes to, to um, Donald Trump specifically, Many world leaders have now realized that um, actually flattering Trump. Trump's a very shallow man, and and flattering him and appealing to his ego is um, the best way to to at least not not create a problem. You know, it doesn't necessarily work to your benefit. You know, as Canada is finding out, right? Because in fact, in the in the course of these NAFTA negotiations, oddly enough, Canada has been the country that's been getting more um, um more often knocked on the head by the Americans in different kinds of trade uh, measures than, than uh Mexico, at least to this point. Um so so having a good relationship with Donald Trump doesn't necessarily protect you, but I think everyone realizes that having a bad relationship with him just invites trouble. And so um, you know, in that this sense, Trudeau trying to have a good personal relationship with Trump and trying not to rock the boat too much, at least on in personal relations, makes a great deal of sense. In terms of policy I think that Canada and the U.S., there are a lot of areas where there's not a lot of choice, where you've got to cooperate with the United States because national interests, the national interests of Canada really do accord with American national interests. Um, but on the other hand, in many, many important ways right now with the Trump administration, Canada and the U.S. really are at odds. And obviously, uh, the issue of trade is the most obvious and significant element of that. You know, So when you've got a situation where the Americans are threatening to tear up NAFTA, where in fact it looks like many people are now betting this is exactly what what Donald Trump will do, Um, well, then you can no longer say that Canada and the U.S. are on the same page. And In fact, many Canadian um, analysts have said the only thing that matters to Canada when it comes to the U.S. is trade. And so if the Americans are out to get us, which is what it looks like on the issue of trade, then we're actually very much at odds with each other. Now, of course, what you see the Trudeau government doing for the past year or so, um, since Trump came in, is they've been exercising what's been called a um, donut strategy. And that's essentially, they've been trying very hard to build relationships and build connections with with political leaders and economic leaders and and other people who are important and powerful in American society all around the White House. So the, the White House is the center of the donut. And they're engaging with everyone else around the White House with the hope being that if Trump ever does take the step of actually giving notice that the United States is leaving NAFTA, well, that's only the first step. After that, it becomes a much more complicated process. It's not clear what the President's authority is, um, and various sorts of, of of implementing legislation would have to be passed by Congress. And Canada's strategy basically is to try to block those initiatives. Um, at that level. And I think that's an excellent strategy. I think that that's the only real strategy you can have when dealing with a guy like Trump. And I think my impression, at least, has been that Canada has done an extremely good job to this point of playing that game. But of course, we're not going to know how well it's actually worked until the test comes. That is, until Trump actually does say, okay, I'm giving notice, we're out in six months. And suddenly, we find that. Congress people and governors and the business leaders are all telling Trump or telling Congress, don't do it. And Canada is behind that, or at least Canada is a major, a major driving force. And when that happens, then suddenly Canada goes from being a minor irritant to Trump to being a major opponent. And we'll see again how that affects Canada-U.S. relations. So in that area, in the area of trade, we're actually very much not on the same page as the Americans. In other areas, we are. Um, but but uh, but the most obvious area where we're we're on the same page, or we seem to be in practice on the same page, is with the Arab-Israeli conflict, and um, and that's a different issue. I think in that case, the liberal government um, is very much playing um, do, do, domestic politics in Canada. It has very little, if anything, to do with the United States, and everything to do with um, the, the the liberal government. Um, political interests at home. In areas like climate change, I think we definitely, again, we're on a very different page. And we have this situation where the government is actually trying to force provinces to implement um, carbon taxes or various sorts of other measures that will reduce carbon pollution. And it is rhetorically, at least, um, certainly much more engaged with the efforts to deal with climate change. That, that also puts us at odds with the United States. So, so even though on the surface I think that there's a lot of you know usual cooperative stuff, and certainly in the security area, on um, the security area, Canada and the U.S. remain good friends. Um, in many other areas, there are lots of tensions, and I think that Trudeau's strategy of working well with Trump or being nice to Trump is a sensible strategy, but it hasn't prevented a lot of these other tensions from coming to the fore. Um, one one last point on this is actually the interesting thing with what happened just a couple of days ago, where uh, Canada and the U.S. sponsored this uh, meeting in Vancouver, to talk about North Korea. Um, that was nonsensical. You know that made utterly no sense. It it was a pointless meeting. It was utterly uh, fruitless. It's not going to result in anything. And if anything, it actually alienated and undermined um, China's willingness to cooperate with Canada and the U.S. and other countries. In dealing with North Korea. Um, and the Chinese and the Russians, too, neither of whom were invited, uh, both totally dismissed um, the exercise. Um, and so it was pointless. And and the only thing that I can think of for why uh Christian Freeland even decided to try to do this is that it was seen as some way to curry some kind of favor with the Americans while we're busy bashing heads with them over NAFTA. And maybe it was some way to kind of um, create a sense that look, it's not just about NAFTA, you also want to have Canada as an ally in other areas. Um, if so, I think it was, again, pointless and
0: fruitless. Just to clarify, there is a, a popular criticism of, of pretty much all governments, uh, that uh, particularly those who advocate you know, uh, uh, traditionally good values in international relations, in foreign policy, being a good actor, similar to what Canada is, is, has been doing. Uh, that when it comes down to it, really, these values don't mean much, and uh, it's interests which override uh, uh, that in decision making. But um, just to sort of clarify, the, um, Canada has a has a, a one-sided relationship with the United States in in more than one way. It's highly dependent on American security and so on, but also on trade. I think between like seventy to eighty-five percent of uh, Canadian exports go to the American market. Does this uh, reduce uh, Canada's ability to be autonomous in this respect?
1: Well, well it's it's a bit more complicated though, because you have to remember Canada and the U.S. had a a very um, extensive trading relationship long before NAFTA, and right. and and in fact, and well, during, before there was the Canadian U.S. Uh, free trade agreement, which pre- preceded NAFTA, or NAFTA actually ended up uh, incorporating it. Um about seventy-five percent of Canada's trade was with the United States. And so um in the years since NAFTA, we've increased that amount of you know percentage of trade by about mm-hmm. ten to fifteen percent. Um so yes, Canada and the US is a very important trading relationship. But if NAFTA died tomorrow, uh well first off, it leads to all kinds of complications. No one's sure what exactly will kick in. And you may know that recently um Canada went to the WTO and basically gave them a list of hundreds of ways in which the United States is violating WTO rules. And mm-hmm. and that was sort of Canada playing hardball with the U.S. over trade issues. Um, but it's not clear. If NAFTA dies tomorrow, it's not clear what kicks in. Um, some people have suggested that the former um, Canada-U.S. free trade deal would, would, would be the the, the the default. Others have said, you know, even if this happened, even if Canada no longer had... Preferential access to the American market, um, we would still continue to have a very extensive trading relationship. Uh, obviously, one not quite as extensive, and we'd be subject to tariffs and things like this. But things like the relative value of the Canadian dollar might compensate for a lot mm-hmm. of it. So, so we go back to a much messier trade relationship, but one that certainly has worked in the past. But you're right. I mean, either way, you know, it's certainly true that if NAFTA died. The Canadian economy, at least initially, would take a major hit, and we'd have to begin readjusting our, our, our approach to the United States in significant ways. And all of that is costly and inconvenient. Um, yeah. and, so, and so that means that having this relationship with the Americans is very important. Now, at the same time, as you know, um, the Canadian federal the government is also committed to, to actually trying to open up trade relationships with as many different countries as possible. And so under the former Harper government, they were negotiating with Europe for many years. And relatively recently, we've had, you know, now this free trade relationship with Europe has now been certified and it's about to be fully implemented. Um, And recently, a few months ago, Trudeau went to China and went there and raised significant expectations that Canada and China would at least begin the process of talking about the creation of a free trade arrangement between us uh, between, between us, and also Canada is trying to get various kinds of FTAs with other Asian countries going too. So Mm -hmm. this effort to diversify has picked up steam and it's actually picked up significantly more steam, um, in the wake of the, the, the Trump administration and, and NAFTA and all the situation around NAFTA. It's driven home this point that we need alternatives. We need other places that we can go to, um, but again, you're right. I mean, 85% of our trade, roughly, is with the United States and our export is with the United States. And that's not going to be replaced um, by anybody anytime soon.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's really uh, fascinating. Just while you were talking there, I was thinking about the parallels to, to Brexit and the fact that uh, in the UK, um, you know, you have a you have a shift uh, away from the the long term relationship with the biggest trading partner, uh, and nobody really knows what's going to happen next. Nobody knows what uh, rules are going to be enacted or, or or how this is going to work. I suppose it's just quite strange that after decades of globalization, we have a retreat from these uh, 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 established order all over the globe.
1: Yes, yes, it is quite fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, but particularly in the Western world. But I mean, uh, a lot of the xenophobia, a lot of the the aversion to opening up to the to the global marketplace and culture, is found um, in in the non-Western world
0: as well. Well, yeah, if we come to a slightly different issue, but uh, obviously related, particularly in terms of Canada's relations with the U.S. Um, we know that one of the big reasons that is uh, normally cited for Canada's loss of uh, of the Security Council seat uh, and loss of uh, uh, prestige uh, uh, in various parts of the world is its uh, sort of strong support, uh, unquestioning support for Israel in many respects. It's interesting, though, that contrary to popular uh, sort of opinion that this was all under Harper, we know that from the UN voting record that this actually started. Under the previous liberal administration of Paul Martin, um, well, even if we account for some of this by looking at the strong personal convictions of of uh, uh, leaders, can, can you account for this? Can, what, what explains uh, why Canada is taking this position uh, under various different uh, administrations?
1: Yeah, I think no, what's interesting. I think I think it's a problem, to be honest with you. I think it's a, going to. Uh, and it has the potential to become a major problem, particularly given how volatile um, the whole debate around Israel-Palestine actually is. Um, well, when you look at the conservatives, as you said, there's there are an awful lot. Uh, the conservative support for um, Israel. and I, I want to say support for Israel. I mean, like unequivocal support for Israel. You know, the, um, it's almost bizarre. In fact, it is bizarre to the extent to which the Harper government allowed. Concerns about support for Israel to dribble into almost every level of of, uh, of of its dealings, not only with the world but with with organizations within Canada. So this just became almost a litmus test for almost everything the government did, which was truly perverse in many ways. Um, but 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 in some respects, that level of commitment was almost overdetermined because, as you said, um, Stephen Harper had a very strong personal commitment to the welfare of Israel and the Jewish people. Um John Beard um had a very deep personal relationship with uh with his own rabbi he had no, he's Catholic but he had his own rabbi. Um and and so you had that level and, and all across the Conservative Party, you had people who were evangelical Christians who had therefore this kind of religious commitment to Israel. They're all Christian Zionists. And so um the fact that they moved Canada into this situation, where where support for Israel was like the one constant um, in Canadian politics and in Canadian foreign policy, um, is not necessarily that unusual. And, and some of the other things that that played a role with the Conservatives, um, they they had so they had an interest in. There was a d- 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 domestic political component to it. So. The Conservative Party came to power with the determination to pull uh, J- Jewish-Canadian voters, who had been traditionally liberal voters, away from the liberals and into into their clutches. And they were very successful in doing that. So, you know, by the time uh, they won their majority in 2011, more than half of Canadian-Jewish voters voted Conservative. Given everything else the Conservative Party was doing, that was a remarkable turnaround, and it certainly demonstrated that to a great many Jewish-Canadians. Um, Issues of Israel were of paramount importance, and the Conservative Party capitalized on that. And it certainly that was one of the reasons that it, it focused in the way that it did. But 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 its focus, as I was saying, was much greater than that. There was personal commitment. There was ideological commitment. Um, evangelical uh, Christians are about three million people in Canada, and they're a heavy, powerful part of the Conservative base. And so they were appealing to that as well. Um, there was also the ideological element that. That the conservative party was, um, a- anti-Muslim and, and they've continued to be anti-Muslim in a very, um, I would say overt way. And so, and they clearly see, and Harper clearly subscribed to an idea that there was a clash of civilizations going on, that the Western world was on one side of that clash and that Muslims were on the other side. And so you see this playing out with enormous frequency in all sorts of ways during the Harper era. Now, the interesting, so, so all of that, you know, explains why the conservative party took the position that it did on Israel. But the thing, of course, is that much of that doesn't apply to the liberals at all. And, and, and so, you know, the evangelical voters are not going to vote for the liberals at all, particularly since uh, abortion has become like a literal plank in the liberal, uh, liberal party platform. Um, so that's not a reason for them to do what they're doing. And when you get right down to it, Um, the only thing that really makes sense is that the Liberal Party is trying to win back Jewish voters and Jewish Canadian support from the Conservatives. Um, And this is closely connected to both both the historical connection between Jewish Canadians and the Liberal Party. Um, And so you you mentioned earlier how um, Canada had begun to move in this more pro-Israel position under Paul Martin. And that's true, though certainly Martin didn't carry it to the extreme that Stephen Harper did. But the movement had started to begin um, under, under Martin. And from what I've read, um, the argument that, that some observers make is that this was largely because there were Jewish-Canadian members of his cabinet um, and his support staff who basically convinced him that there was a need for Canada to re-examine its position um, on the votes it took at the UN. So let's say that was the main thing motivating Martin, and then Harper's motivations I've already discussed. In the Trudeau case, um, I think it's almost entirely, um, the Liberal Party wants to regain Jewish voters, Jewish-Canadian voters, um, and they also want to regain the financial support of those voters. And this this dovetails really strongly with the fact that over the past 15 years or so, um, campaign finance laws in Canada have changed remarkably. And today, the only way you really get you can raise money um, is if you um, appeal to, to, to people who are willing to make personal donations to your campaign. And so when the Liberal Party under Trudeau um, decided to make Stephen Bronfman their major fundraiser, you know, the one guy in charge of fundraising. This was the very specific outreach to uh, um, J- 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 Jewish Canadian voters and Jewish Canadian finances, and and you've seen that play out fairly consistently. So one of the first things that Justin Trudeau did after he became leader was was well, was visit visit Israel, and uh, Stephen Bronfman was with him, and Bronfman talked about how. Um, Trudeau was referring to to Canada and Israel as an us. And this was all meant to send a signal to Jewish-Canadian voters that Trudeau was solidly on their side. Now, I think this is a problem for um, the Liberal Party, because if this is the only real thing motivating this this particular kind of policy, um, the Liberal Party has been able to get away with basically maintaining the harper um policy in the UN when it comes to Israel-Palestine because they've been very quiet about it. You know, they've downplayed it, they haven't drawn attention to it the way that the Harper people did. Um, but I don't think you can continue that forever. And the problem that they face is that a significant majority of Liberal Party supporters have a negative view of Israel. And a an overwhelming majority of Canadians actually support things or at least believe that there's nothing wrong with something like the the boycott divestment and sanctions movement. An overwhelming majority of Canadians believe the Palestinians don't have a particularly strong voice in Canadian politics or media. Um and and it's very, very hard to reconcile small L liberal values with um with 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 this sort of full throated or it's not full throated, it's certainly um full voting support for Israel. And it gets harder and harder, the further and further right that Israel itself goes. And so I think that the the Trudeau people, um, and Trudeau and the people around him, are going to run into a major problem on this, because you can't reconcile things like your liberal values, your caring for human rights, or in particular, getting back to Trudeau's UN speech, how do you reconcile the concern with Canadian colonialism and the mistreatment of the native people of Canada, with supporting Israel as it practices um, colonialism over the Palestinians and the mistreatment of the um, native Arab population of Palestine, you know the things just don't go together, and and so I think that this is going to become a bigger problem for the Trudeau Liberals, particularly um, if, as seems very possible. Between now and 2020, um, there's another uprising um, um, of Palestinians against Israeli rule or, or some kind of further outburst of violence. And if Canada ends up in a situation where it's voting on the world stage in a very prominent um, forum on a very prominent and maybe very controversial and emotional issue at that time, and it comes out unequivocally in support of Israel, um, it's going to be a hard sell internationally. But I think it's also going to be a hard sell at home. And there are already some indications that among um, liberal MPs, there's a fair amount of disquiet or or uncertainty around the the government policy on this. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but a few months ago, back in, I think it was March of uh, 2016, when um, the House of, when the Parliament voted, on a motion brought before the House by the Conservatives to condemn the BDS movement. Um, I think it was something like two Liberal MPs, or at least one Liberal MP, maybe two, voted against the measure. Um, a number of them who were in the House, about 10 or 11 of them who were in the House, abstained. And there were something like 40 uh, Liberal MPs who were not there at the time. Um, and of course, they could have been gone for a whole variety of reasons, but at least in some cases, they probably weren't there because they didn't want to vote one way or the other. Um, and so I think this is going to continue to be an issue, particularly if the issue starts to become more and more violent within within um, Israel-Palestine itself. And then it becomes harder for the Canadian government to dodge how they're actually voting and what they're actually doing.
0: Yeah, that's a. Uh... That's a fascinating analysis. I'm just looking at the um, the data now, and you're right, it was only one Liberal MP who voted uh, against the government on that bill. Um, but let me ask you uh, uh, how this fits into the broader, sort of bigger picture. Canada's making this shift or, or continuing on this line, I suppose, of strong support for Israel at a time when there is even greater polarisation than normal on this issue with... Uh, the Europeans uh, uh, in particular are taking uh, a, a tougher line against uh, Israel's uh, colonization of the, the West Bank and uh, promotion of of the two-state solution while the United States under Trump has taken uh, more steps away from that uh, and uh, supporting uh, you know, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, pretty uh, firmly and outrightly so uh, what is what is the consequence? of this uh, position taken by Canada, this continuity with the pro, the, the ve- sort of unquestionably pro-Israeli position, uh, uh, what's the impact of that going to be um, on, uh, uh, on the pursuit of the Security Council seat? Uh, will it put that in jeopardy, potentially?
1: Well, yes, I think, well, 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 you know, definitely in the Security Council election, in the sense that if, there's a, if the vote is held, at the time, at a time that there is a great unrest in in Palestine, um, people are going to notice and pay attention to Canada's voting record. And um, you know, one of the reasons that that the Harper government didn't get didn't wasn't even able to proceed further into the vote because it knew it would lose um, is because many Arab countries, basically, and is Muslim countries. And other countries, in fact, beyond those, basically said, we already have one country on the Security Council that is reflexively pro-Israel, the U.S. Why Why do we need another? And and I think the same argument would come up again if this became an issue at the time of, of the of the vote. Now, I think the thing is that it may well be an issue anyway. Because, as you said, you know, on, on the vote on uh, Jerusalem... Um, Canada was one of what nine countries or something oh so sorry sir so Canada abstained but 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 the fact that we abstained in itself um, is a problem or potentially a problem um because we you know we seem to go against our own stated policy and, and in fact in many of the votes that have been held in the UN on issues related to Israel Palestine since the Trudeau government became became the government um, we seem to have voted against our own stated policy which of course was what Harper government was doing for years. And so, but I think from a a larger point of view, it's a bigger problem for Canada in general because one of the things that Trudeau means when he says Canada is back, in a foreign policy sense, is that Canada traditionally has supported international law, multilateralism, a sort of a globalized approach to dealing with world problems because Canada sees itself, and Trudeau is very explicit on this, he sees Canada as a global state. You know He's talked about Canada as maybe being the first post-nationalist state. So it's a country open to everybody, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your race or religion, etc. Everyone's Canadian. Um, and that, that's very much in keeping with the kind of Canadian ideal that he's trying to harken back to. At an international level, that means being a multilateral player. It means respecting international law. It means building and helping to support international organizations. Um, so that's all good, but what do you do when you've got a country like Israel, which is clearly violating international law, you know, which clearly is working against um, the, the edicts and the the the, the resolutions of the premier international organization? Um, how, as a Canadian leader, do you reconcile our supposed support for international law? And, and this is something that is actually stated within our our policy on the Arab-Israeli conflict. How do you reconcile that with what you're actually doing in practice or what you're supporting in practice? So sort of giving Israel this free pass creates other dangers for Canada, that it undermines our foreign policy, our consistency in our foreign policy in other important ways and and again, the question becomes uh, how much is that going? what kind of damage is that going to do? Now again, for the conservatives, this was much less of an issue because the conservatives were not at all, um, globalists. you know, they uh, Under Harper, they were, they, they were generally opposed to global multilateralism. They saw themselves as being part of a Western bloc that was in opposition to the rest of the world. Harper went out of his way to spit on the United Nations. He went out of his way to emphasize this Western connection with other Anglo-American countries. And part of the reason that they were so anti-Muslim is because in fact, they didn't see Canada as being a globalist state in the same way that that uh, that the Liberals did. Now, the Conservative Party of Canada under Harper was unique in the Western world in that it was the only fairly far right wing political party which was also open to to people of all backgrounds and all all eth- 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 ethnicities and. And and that's unique because, you know, usually immigrants, as we're seeing now in the United States and in Britain and parts of Europe, usually immigrants are the target of right-wing political parties. So the conservatives were different in that they actually realized that they would never be able to form government if they weren't open to, to, to immigrants to Canada. But the big exception were, were people of Muslim background, right? They, they closed themselves off. They sent the message that Muslims really weren't welcome in Canada. Trudeau isn't sending that message. He's actually explicitly sending the opposite message. So again, it becomes hard for him to reconcile a lot of his domestic and philosophical political positions with the whole situation with Israel. And so Israel, as a philosophical problem, as a political problem, and maybe even as a, a longer-term problem around what exactly does the Liberal Party represent when it comes to dealing with new Canadians, I think it's it's a much... It has a, potential to be a much bigger problem for the party further down the line.
0: Okay, so let me ask you a, a bit more of a proper international relations question. Um, it, in, in most of the literature, Canada is either referred to as a middle power or a, a, um, a principal power, um, but it, in in some um, literature that's more on the fringe um, uh, of uh, sort of academia, uh, they note, you know, some of Canada's actions, particularly in the Middle East and Africa, and Latin America, such as the role of Canadian companies, for instance, in in exploratory mining, and that's been particularly harmful for Indigenous communities. In particular, there's a court case going on right now in Ontario, which is said to resolve whether a Canadian company is uh, indirectly responsible for abuse suffered by Indigenous communities in Guatemala. Anyway, these kind of examples are are often cited as evidence to make the case that Canada is in fact more of a a neo-colonial power. What's your take on it?
1: Well, I don't think Canada is really a neo-colonial power. I mean, mean, you have a number of Canadian companies that behave very badly around the world. And you're right. I mean, uh, Canada, when it comes to mining, I think Canadian companies dominate the field internationally. on the other hand, the cases that you're talking about um, are actually being 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 conducted in Canada because, for the first time, Canadian courts are beginning to hold the conduct of what Canadian companies um, do abroad to account within the Canadian, within Canada itself, and and that's a move I think very much in the right direction. That Canadian companies can no longer go off and and do horrible things around the world without potentially being held responsible for what they do at home. Um, and so I think from that point of view, that undermines the argument that Canada is a neocolonial power in that sense. Now, it's unfortunate that this ever happened at all and that the need for this kind of change was there. But, you know, the change has been made and hopefully it will will hold um, hold these companies more in check. The thing with the neocolonialism as well is that, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the term, but I tend to think that that's something that would reply more to a question of, what state policy is, and um I don't think well, well, I have to be careful here because certainly there is evidence, and there are examples of the Canadian government running interference for its various um, um business interests Canadian business interests around the world, and from that point of view um then yes, the state has been working in collusion with um, um, um industrial powers industrial um, businesses in Canada to Gain things for them. And that's, well, I'm not sure that's quite neo colonial. It certainly isn't uh, admirable conduct or moral conduct. Um, but the question of, you know, how to characterize Canada, like is it a middle power? Is it a principal power? Um, I think that it remains a middle power. But the problem is that it's not entirely clear any longer what that term means. And it's certainly become a much more internationally crowded field you know and so the concept of the middle power was you know developed in the course of the Cold War and at the time it made a lot of sense in that context because you had countries like Canada which which are they're certainly not big powers like the Americans or the Soviets were or even the British or the French at the time though that's always debatable um, how powerful they are but you know, but even so um, Canada wasn't in that class. But it also was not in the same class as all the many many small or relatively small and politically weak countries that make up most of the rest of the world and so Canada occupied this kind of um in in between position and it saw itself as as occupying that position and and it saw that that status as giving it uh an ability to speak to um All sides in different conflicts and to try to build bridges between the different Cold War blocks and to try to create connections that otherwise um, more powerful states would have difficulty doing. And so being a middle power had with it unique kinds of responsibilities and capabilities. But it also was taking place within the context of a world where there were distinct blocks, where there was a, a clearly sketched out general structure that everybody understood and everyone for the most part, operated within or operated in relation to. Today, that's gone, right? And so it might be, uh, uh, it might still be true that Canada has the capacity to make itself heard, to um, bring states together, that it is an economically large state with a fairly strong international presence. You know, Canada has soft power. It's regarded as a positive place by most places in the world. Um, but a lot of other countries also have big and growing economies or they're politically important in their particular region or um they are emerging on the world stage in significant ways and many of them may have greater claims to being middle powers than canada does so you know so um, brazil for example or or indonesia um maybe even malaysia malaysia is about you know a little less than 30 million people um which isn't that much smaller than canada um on latin america there might be other countries uh in Africa, um, you know, where does a country like uh, Nigeria fit? And so there are many other countries that are rising up into that kind of intermediate level, and that kind of crowds uh, the field for Canada. And and Canada, I think, is almost unique in the sense that it has a great deal of soft power. It's well regarded in the world, and it has a, a, a it's not a moral authority, than a kind of a ideological appeal that that many people. Understand and, and view positively. But how well that translates into actual political and influence, um, that's a different question. And, and so I think Canada is still a middle power, but the notion of what it is to be a middle power has changed significantly since the end of the Cold War. And we're still trying to work out what that means and where where we fit into it. So, as, as a final aside, I'd say, you know, one a good example of this is the whole question of what exactly do we do with our hard power?
0: You know, mm-hmm. because
1: we 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 want to be effective in the world we need to have a certain amount of hard power we need to be able to help the united nations you know launch or or get involved with different kinds of interventions on the parts of the world Or we may need to um, be able to send supplies and support to places in the world that are have been affected by natural disasters or maybe maybe um, um, you know civil wars or things like that we don't really have that capacity right now or a lot of it is contingent on our Relationship with other countries, particularly the U.S., and if we want to be an independent actor, we need to we need to put more energy into both the hard power as well as the soft power elements.
0: So yeah, I think uh, a lot of what you said relates to uh, what the government's stated aims are and, and uh, uh, of reinforcing the new the the established liberal democratic order um, in international relations. Um, Perhaps this we can call uh, this a sort of a, a new middle powermanship to, coin, uh, to borrow from uh, John Wendell Holmes' uh, famous uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek term. But let me ask you this: if this is the government's mission, how are they doing so far? Uh, how would you? Uh, what grade would you give them?
1: I I think I would give it maybe a, a C plus, a B minus, something somewhere around there. Because I think, again, um, NAFTA is a concern from a foreign policy point of view that's sort of sucking all the air out of the room from from Canada's perspective. And so, you know, a lot of attention has gone to that. And I think they've handled the NAFTA situation quite well. But in terms of maintaining and promoting the liberal democratic order in the world or the liberal order in the world, um, Canada just has, Canada is just a relatively small state. I mean, if we had a population of 100 million people, then we'd be talking about a whole different ball game here. Because Canada is a vast country with incredible resources, um, it could easily be one of the most powerful countries in the world in every single on every single measure if it didn't have a tiny population on on, on an enormous landmass. So we're dealing with what we've got. We've got a population of about 36, 37 million people um enormous wealth and enormous potential wealth. But we lack um we lack the hard power, we lack the, the overwhelming economic presence to really be a leading champion of the liberal international order. I think we can play our small role, we can promote it, we can, as you know, as frequently people say, we punch above our weight. Um but one of the reasons in the past that we punched above our weight was because of our relationship with the U.S. And right now, our relationship with the U.S. is is not going to win us um, any brownie points when it comes to being able to promote the liberal order because, of course, the United States is one of the biggest threats to the liberal order right now. Um, so I think that by default, Canada has gained a major role in the world, a major role in promoting or trying to promote the liberal order, because as you said, so many other major leading states um, just aren't doing this or have actually, if not abandoned that the, their role in promoting the liberal order. They're actively hostile to it. Um, but I'm not sure, but we just, I think, lack the, the real power to make a fundamental difference. Um, Right now, for example, one of our biggest allies in maintaining the liberal order would be, would be China, because you know, China is very much about maintaining the liberal economic order anyway. And that would be a question you'd have to, have to clarify when it comes to this whole question of what exactly is the liberal order, because most people assume, I think, that it's liberal economic values, which of course we're fine with, but also there's an element of liberal um, civil values and, and, and political values and and that's a more complicated question because can you ally yourself with China in promoting a liberal economic order while at the same time um ally yourself with China or or not ally yourself with China actually work against China when it comes to trying to promote liberal political values so so this is a very different kind of liberal order or a very a much more truncated kind of liberal order that we could realistically expect to help maintain um So I think that that Chrystia Freeland's speech was interesting in that it certainly put forward the idea that Canada was going to try its best to do what it could to maintain the order. Uh, Canada was even going to recognize that um, the U.S. was no longer reliable. I mean, she didn't say that explicitly, but she certainly implied that, you know, that a time had come when we could no longer count on the United States and we had to be able to count on ourselves. And I think that if that's true, if that's where the government's trying to go, that's a long-term process. And while Canada might eventually get to the point where it could be a major player in the world economy, in the world security realm, in the ch- in the idea of building up, um, you know, international organizations and multilateral institutions, um, we're not there yet. We need a much bigger population. We need a, need a much larger base to draw on and we're gradually working our way there, but we're still decades away from, from that kind of status. Um, but as I said a moment ago, by default, we end up maybe occupying an outsized position in this area just because everyone else seems to be falling off the cart. You know, the, as I said, the British, you know, they're, they're not nowhere to be found on this issue. Um, the French are always questionable. Um, the Germans, they can't get their act together enough to get themselves a government. And if Angela Merkel... Um, falls by the wayside, which is looking possible, um, then who's left? You know, Justin, at this point, many people are saying that Justin Trudeau and Angela Merkel and maybe uh, Macron in France are the only liberal democratic champions left in the world. Um, if you lose Merkel, you lose the one person, I think, who really does have a great deal of clout to go with her words and her proclamations.
0: Yeah, well. What a transformation it is, really. When you're looking for, you know, a defence of the international liberal order, you know, created after the Second War, you you look to Beijing, not to Washington or London. It really is quite remarkable, isn't it?
1: Well, it's yeah, it's it's a very strange time. I mean, um, I, I mean, but from another point of view, it was all but inevitable. Now, I don't think inevitable in the sense of like I don't think that someone like Trump necessarily was inevitable, though. Though I do think that when you look at um, at Trump, Trump, Trump is not a fluke. You know, he he had well, he's a fluke in, in the sense that you know his victory was um, fluky in many many respects. It really was a fluke. Uh, um, but at the same time, the reality is that the Republican Party, you know, one of the two major American political parties, nominated him to be their candidate, and that didn't happen by accident. Now, that was the culmination of more than forty years of certain kinds of political developments in the United States that built up to the point that you ended up with a truly atrocious candidate as the nominee. Um, So these things don't happen, I think, out of the blue. And when it comes to things like a changing international order, I think that the moment the Cold War ended, um, the fact that power was going to realign in important ways was the most probable outcome. Um, I think the United States has done things in that 25-year period that uh, have greatly accelerated its decline, its relative decline. But um, I think, you know, every hegemon ultimately fails, and that leads to some kind of period of unrest and uh, realignment. And we're living through that now. know, China is a rising power, though, though with many caveats attached to its rise, because China has enormous internal problems, and the Americans are declining, relatively speaking, and they have enormous internal problems. And everyone else is kind of, um, you know, flittering around trying to figure out where to stand and what to do and how to manage this, this situation where we're all in it together, but people are trying to roll the boats in different directions.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a really fantastic, uh, fascinating discussion. And I think this is going to be a, a really good episode of the podcast. Thank you again. this podcast series was originally produced with the help and support of the human rights research and education center at the university of ottawa we're still very grateful to to them but we need your support too if you enjoyed this episode please take a moment to uh, rate and review uh, the podcast on, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help other people find the series. And if you're feeling particularly generous, have a look at our Patreon page. This is a not per profit operation, but we, we do have a few overheads to keep up the website and so forth. So any contribution would be extremely gratefully received. And that's it for another episode. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This was Globalization Café. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach-No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafé.com, on Twitter at Café Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.